Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's bring in Jared Woodard now, Bank of America Securities Head of the Research Investment Committee. Jared, your line, not mine. We update our view on the US-China shift from trade war to capital war. What does that mean, Jared? Well, hey, John, it means that, you know, this, is, this goes from a very narrow, you know, fight around uh, soybeans and then maybe semiconductors under the last administration uh, to, in the future, a uh, much more open-ended, all-hands-on-deck, you know, complete uh, total mobilization. Uh, well, that's the theory anyway. Um, when we looked at this bill, you know, one of the things we saw is that, is that although, of course, you guys are right, there's, there's this bipartisan, you, you know, rhetoric, there's, there's some unanimity politically in Congress. I mean, Congress voted unanimously, I, I believe, you know, to delist Chinese ADRs from U.S. exchanges last year. But when we look at this bill, we find something a little bit different. The numbers don't seem to quite match up. I mean, if you think about research and development, which is undoubtedly you know, the front lines of the future of new technology and who's going to win the future. I think the Chinese National Party of Congress just approved something like $500 billion for R&D. They've, they've been beating the U.S. on this measure for a while and really ramping up. Uh, the bill that the Biden administration just produced, well, it's not $500 billion. I think it's about $180 billion for research and development uh, investment. And that doesn't sound like catching up to me. Dr. Woodard, Tom King, good morning to you, and I really want to congratulate you folks. It is rare that someone at any bank puts out a research report where the world stops. I think John and I and Lisa can agree that when Woodard publishes, really the whole global Wall Street world stops to read what he's talking about. Jared, what do you and Bank of America say about what institutions are going to do with their cash? Not what the public's going to do, but what is global Wall Street going to do with their cash in a boom economy? Well, there, there, Tom, there is, there is some reason for optimism because our, our view of the Bank of America is that we're on the cusp of one of the biggest CapEx booms in, in modern history. I mean, I think you'll have to go back to Ronald Reagan to see a period over the next five years that will look, you know, uh, uh, quite like this one. So we, we do expect that industrials, um, technology, other firms are going to be expanding capacity rapidly. Part of that's just an organic rebound coming out of the recession. But part of it is going to be uh, finding unmet demand that they'll want to build into for the first time in a very long time. And so we do expect that there's going to be new building in property, plants, and equipment. I mean, real fixed assets, physical investment, um, not just intellectual property, not just ways to squeeze you know, more efficiency out of workers, uh, which has been the trend for, for quite a long time. So if we have 2% CapEx growth you know, as our trend for a while, um, you know, our economists expect, our, our analysts expect a wide-ranging surge. And I think that's going to be a real positive for U.S. GDP. Jared, how do you factor in potentially higher taxes on corporations with this expectation for a capex boom? It's a tricky moment. Uh, obviously, a lot of a lot of you know corporate leaders are going to push back about this, and it's, I think it's important to keep in mind from the from the Biden administration side of things that this is undoubtedly an opening bid. You know, you have to play bad cop before you can play good cop. Uh, you have to show to progressives that you know you tried to to hike taxes on the rich and hike taxes on corporations, et cetera, so that when moderates uh, come in and then push back, you can sort of make some compromises. Uh, so, you know, I don't think anyone expects that the final bill, whatever does get passed, will necessarily look like this. Uh, but that being said, I think everyone agrees, including corporate leaders, that if you grow the pie enough, 
um, you know, paying a slightly higher share of taxes is a trade well worth making. Jared, this is the analysis. What's the market call? The market call is that reopening's priced in. I mean, the summer spending, the, 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 the wet, hot American summer that we're about to get, where everyone, you know, goes a little bit nuts for a little while, uh, is going to feel great uh, for the real economy. It's, it's already priced into Wall Street, and it may not feel great to Wall Street. Remember April of, of 2020, you had the real economy in, in tatters and stocks, you know, ripping higher. I think we're about to see something more like the reverse, in which the real economy reopens. It's a great time for people who you know, need to find jobs. And, and, and markets don't really have that much, actually, to, to go on. So it could be a little bit of a digestion moment. Um, I think what matters more is what happens when you do see infrastructure pass. Now, th- we're going to be talking about this for a while. There's going to be a lot of political back and forth, you know, this summer around these bills. I think it's one of these unusual moments where you actually want to, you know, sell the, sell the rumor and buy the news. Like, buy once you actually know what's in the bill and what can get passed and what will get done. And, and on, on that front, I think... You know, investors have not at all, you know, priced anything in, do not, you know, are not ready and not positioned for, for what's going to come. It's just going to require a lot more analysis on, until we get there. Jared, I want to finish on this idea of how individuals are going to spend cash, not just corporations. And you had in your phenomenal note the idea that 69% of the excess savings, the excess cash savings in the United States, about more than $1.5 trillion, has gone to the top 20% of income earners. The idea here that they are less likely to spend, perhaps not as inflationary as people had expected. Can you please elaborate on that? Absolutely, Lisa. We know from history that Folks who already have quite a lot of money don't tend to spend it in an aggressive way if they get a little bit more. Uh, that's not true for middle and lower income households who are sort of you know, hand to mouth, uh, every, every you know, uh, paycheck matters. So historically, when you give some extra income to the bottom uh, brackets, you know, they will spend it more. And that's, that's been the kind of hopes, I think, in the Biden administration, uh, even in the Trump administration last year in terms of getting aid out to people. What we found in the survey is that some of the you know, some of the respondents uh, are telling us that with these $1,400 stimulus checks, they're actually going to save um, most of it, or, or, or majority said that they're going to save, either keep it in cash, pay off debts, uh, you know, maybe save it in some financial assets, put it yeah. into the market. Uh, but they're not going to be spending in the real economy by the same degree that history would suggest. And that's why our economists expect, yes, a surge in inflation this summer, you know, a, a bit of a wild moment, but that by next December, we're back below 2% inflation. Jared, before you run, let's talk about something else your economists suggest. The team, Michelle Mayer, leading them a million tomorrow, a million payrolls growth. What's behind it, Jared? I think you're seeing, I mean, in, in, in some parts of the country where folks are, are keeping it tight, uh, you know, we're, things haven't changed very much from you know, six or, or, or nine months ago. But yeah. in other parts of the country, they've reopened already. And I think that's going to feed through to the job numbers because people, you know, want to get back to normal. Employers want to get back to normal. And they're not waiting for the CDC to tell them that they can. Very true. Jared, we said that repeatedly on this show, that's for sure. Jared Woodard. Jared, good to see you. Joining us from Bank of America. Let's talk to the White House right now. I'm pleased to say that back with us is Jared Bernstein, White House Counsel of Economic Advisors member. Jared, you'd have to forgive me. The last conversation we had was about whether the bill was too much. Now we're having a conversation about whether it's too little. 2.25 trillion over eight years. Why does this get it done? This is like the Goldilocks story of economic policy, right? It's too hot, it's too cold. Uh, the, uh, the bill is, uh, is, is of a magnitude to really dig into the 
infrastructure deficiencies that have evolved in this country over so many years. And uh, as some people have said, some in praise, some in criticism, we define I I infrastructure quite broadly here to include not just roads and bridges, which are essential and something the president's long talked about, but also clean energy, uh, housing, uh, the care economy. Um, there are many components to this bill. The fact sheet is 25 pages long. And of course, there are a set of pay-fors uh, that uh, more than pay for the uh, the expenditures over over 15 years. I want to pick out one of the numbers, Jared, 180 billion of which goes to what's billed as the biggest non-defense research and development program on record. <laughs> the president keeps bringing up China. In the White House statement, you talk about the ambitions of an autocratic China, a challenge of our time. And we've seen the Made in China 2025 plan that was released several years ago. Jared, 180 billion, it just feels like a dip in the ocean. We caught up with Bank of America about 40 minutes ago on this very topic, who said exactly that. It's not enough. Why do you think it is? Because I think you have to just look at a lot of other line items and not just that one. This uh, this measure, this American Jobs Plan, is replete with many more tax credits and incentives for R&D and innovation that dig a lot deeper than that. Uh, there's the ones in the manufacturing space, but there's a full spate of ones in the clean energy space. When you get to electric vehicles, we do a very deep dive into incentivizing the production of not just electric vehicles, but charging station and batteries batteries here in this country. So this is the largest play I've seen in my economic career to uh, onshore industries, to build up nascent industries, to grab global market share in areas where we could uh, we could beat our competitors. Jared Bernstein, I want to go to your claim book, All Together Now. The goal here is All Together Now, and every report I see is a huge body of America is in support of infrastructure, etc. I want you to speak right now to some fancy Republican sitting fat and happy in a suburb about why they should support this bill, even if their senator doesn't? Well, uh, if they do feel that way, they're, they're among a, a significant majority. 80% of Republicans support investment in infrastructure. So uh, this is something that is widely recognized, as your own reporting has shown, as a great need. I think there's been a pretty significant disconnect between Republican opposition to anything that comes from the other side and where uh, constituents and the population is at large. And look, Joe Biden got 81 million votes from all of America uh, to uh, not just uh, uh, fight with with, uh, folks uh, here, but to make sure that he meets the needs of the country. And that's what that's that's what he's doing here. What's the mix that you see and how do you respond to those on the left? What's the mix that I see? I'm the mix sorry? within the bill, the social programs versus uh, bridges. You know, Gina Raimondo, the Secretary of Commerce, has to fix a bridge in Rhode Island. Great. We all get that. Yeah. But in this program, whatever anybody wants to say, there's a lot of social messaging, social hope and planning. Uh, How do you so respond to progressives that want more? Well, I mean, I, I, it's funny you should say that. I was just reading an article <clears throat> uh, in the Washington Post where uh, Derek Hamilton, who's, a, 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 I think, quite a brilliant and also a, a renowned pro progressive, a, a scholar of, uh, of, of racial disparities, uh, was, po was pointing out that 
Um, our definition of infrastructure here is broad, and it should be. Not only does uh, the bill do the kinds of traditional uh, measures we've talked about and, and the clean energy and the innovation and the manufacturing part, uh, but there's also a, a deep housing policy that goes after exclusionary zoning, which is something you rarely see from the federal government with a really interesting competitive uh, program. And, and, and this is an area where systemic racism is embedded. If you look at how we stand up the care economy, this is something progressives care a lot about. So I think if people start looking at uh, what's in here, uh, they're going to recognize that it's it's plenty progressive, As, and especially when you get to the uh, highly progressive uh, tax pay fors. And I'll just point out that Gina Raimondo is going to be on Bloomberg Television today at 12.30 p.m. to weigh in more. You know, Jared, I think there is a lot of agreement on the end goals of this $2.25 trillion plan. How we get there, though, is a point of contention. And there is this reputation of government-funded operations being incredibly inefficient. People point to the DMV, waiting in line and waiting on it for hours to just speak to someone for a basic procedure. What are you telling people to ensure them that we're not going to end up with 40,000 DMVs that are inefficient yeah. and not using money well? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I have a two-word answer for you, President Biden, okay? I worked for Vice President Biden at the time during the implementation of the Recovery Act, and he recognizes really more than any politician I've ever worked for that simply signing legislation and moving on to the next thing, you know, going to land the next airplane uh, is not the way to go. We have to, this is a passion of his. We have to show uh, the American people who are footing the bill for this that we are not just signing uh, documents here, that we're paying full attention to implementation. Yeah. And if you look and if you look at the distribution and production of the vaccine, uh, I think you see good governance is back in town and at work, and you're going to see that in this plan as well. I am shocked, Jared, that you think the current president is part of the solution. Let me get to the next question. Looking forward, where's the rest of it? Where are the tax hikes elsewhere? What can we expect, Jared, and when? Uh, I think the president said something to the tune of mid-April in terms of the uh, the next part of this called the Families Plan, and I'm not going to uh, get ahead of him on, on the announcements in there. But, uh, Don't yes. expect you to. Just in the time we have, Jared, if you could just characterize the effort just a little bit more clearly for us. Is this sure. a bigger redistribution effort, a bigger wealth redistribution effort that's still to come in a couple of weeks? Much more in the sense of, of building back better. That is, this is a, an effort to, to deal, to dive more deeply into the to the parts of uh, that you see, uh, that you don't see uh, that much in this plan. We do have some care economy in here, but there's more to do there. There's education, uh, and then there's uh, tax, uh, tax uh, issues on the personal side of the code. So there's there's more to get back to, uh, and, and we will uh, in, in a matter of weeks, not months. Jared, people view this plan as being a starting point to negotiations. Picking up on the tax point, are the higher taxes on corporations and individuals making more than $400,000 non-negotiable going forward? Well, the president has put that 400,000 uh, line in the sand, and uh, that's something he has continually elevated. And uh, I don't think I, I don't want to say anything's non-negotiable because the president is consistently uh, shown that he's willing to reach across the aisle and try to get input from the other side. Uh, but that's been a very solid commitment right. of his. I think I think that the idea that we're going to just keep doing things and never paying for them, uh, if you want to come forward with different ideas of how to pay for things, as long as you recognize that 400K boundary, you know, we're willing to listen. Right. Dr. Bernstein, will the Congressional Budget Office score or analyze this bill and what will be their timeline? Eight years, 15 years or 30 years? 
Uh, typically, the Congressional Budget Office uses a 10-year budget window, so that would be their timeline. Now, this is about an eight-year spending plan, but the the, uh, the tax uh, increases just uh, continue on uh, forever. So uh, by year 15, uh, the uh, the revenue raisers pay for the plan, uh, but uh, the, the CBO tends to use a 10-year window. Jared, it's always good to catch up, and we appreciate the ongoing contribution to this program, sir. Thank you for the transparency. Jared Bernstein there, White House Council of Economic Advisors. Right now, Michael Wilson joins us. Mike Wilson, he has been dead on with Morgan Stanley on small cap. Mike, let me just cut to the chase. How do you adapt and adjust to Q2? Yeah, well, thanks, Tom. Uh, yeah, I think... The, the Q2 is going to be the actual reopening, right? So um, the dream of reopening, the dream of restarting the economy, is always you know bullish, and it's a you know because there's no prove prove it moment. Now, um, as we actually reopen the economy, um, we're going to have to do it, um, and execution risk goes up. So that's not the end of the bull market; it's not a disaster. But at the stock level, you know we're, we're expecting disappointment. I mean, we think it's going to be difficult for a lot of companies to manage this. And oh, by the way, some companies are going to take advantage of it take share and will operate quite well. So one of our recent calls is, you know, we did downgrade small caps. It's had a heck of a run and it's kind of a lower quality area. And we're basically recommending that people do upgrade the portfolio a bit on the quality side as we go through this reopening period in Q2 and Q3. Is it fair to say you think this is a sell the news event, Mike? Well, I don't think it's a sell the news in, in terms of, you know, equities over bonds in that regard. I think it's more of a Let's just get, uh, I mean, the low quality part of the trade has really worked. As you know, John, I mean, we've been bullish from the lows on the idea that's what always happens and low quality does really well coming off a recession. We looked at that data recently and the, and the relative outperformance of low quality over higher quality and some other things we can talk about has been extraordinary, small caps over large, for example. And we just want to capture that because this is the time of the recovery in any cycle where you revert back, you have a little consolidation and quality actually becomes more in favor again, at least temporarily. A foundation for your call, Mike, along with the rest of the team, has just been where we are in the cycle. The old playbook, the reopening, the recession playbook, the early stage part of the cycle. We've moved on from that. In your words, you and I have caught up several times on this in the last month. Now you're thinking about the duration of the cycle, the intensity of the cycle as well. Can you add in those dynamics and why that shapes your thoughts right now, Mike? Yeah, I mean, we've been uh, waiting to write this note for a couple of years, to be honest, because... We always felt that, you know, as we went into this recession, we didn't predict a pandemic, but we felt like this next recession was going to challenge policymakers because we were still very close to the zero bound. And this transition to fiscal policy um, has only been accentuated by the fact that we're in a pandemic, right? There's no governor on what, you know, politicians can do because it's a health crisis. And that was a perfect foil for this accelerated transition to a new regime. We think it looks very much like the post-World War II period in many ways. We, we wrote about this. And what that really means, bottom line, is that we're likely to have more of a boom-bust type uh, outcome. In the last 30 years, I mean, as rates have been coming down, the Fed has been allowed to be extraordinarily accommodative. Uh, and that's why you had these long economic expansions. There was no pressure from monetary policy. But we were always shooting below trend on targets on growth and, and inflation. We think that's changing now. And what that means is more frequent recessions. That's actually a great investment opportunity if you know what you're doing. Um, I mean, it, it, that's cycle analysis 101, and that's why we think this note's pretty important for people to read. So, Mike, how are you preparing for the bust, and when could it be? Oh, it's, I mean, look, the next recession is not anytime soon. I mean, 
But like, let's let's talk about the last couple of res, uh, expansions, Lisa. I mean, they've lasted you know eight, nine, ten years. Um, we think it's probably more like four to five years. So and, and and so what that means in the very near term is you move out of that early cycle playbook to more of a mid cycle playbook, and that means you know <clears throat> once again low quality tends to you know not perform as well. As an example, small caps tend to not do as well. Um, we just upgraded consumer staples relative to consumer discretionary. Consumer discretionary tends to be the best early cycle performing group. Well, that period's probably coming to an end. So there's a lot of things to think about in your portfolio construction. How does big tech factor into this, Mike, especially considering how high the run-up was and where valuations are? Yeah, so tech is, um, you know, obviously from a cyclical standpoint, tech should be doing quite well because obviously as you come out of a recession, things like semiconductors and some of the more cyclical parts of tech, you know, benefit from that. There's going to be a huge CapEx boom. Um, I think that's I think that's something to look forward to. And so like tech hardware, some of the older traditional type tech companies that could benefit from that may do better. For us, it's a neutral for a couple of reasons. Number one, the pandemic was unusual and that we saw a pull forward of demand last year for a lot of technology companies as we digitized the economy and, and made it easier to work from home. So there's going to be some payback on demand in the short term there. We think that could be a bit of a headwind. But then structurally, longer term, you know, this idea that rates are now bottoming from a long-term perspective and they're going to continue to rise is going to be a headwind on valuation for some of these secular growth companies. So it's much, once again, it's much more right. about picking stocks and trying to find things that can buck that trend. Mike, 10 years back, 15.6 per year. 20 years back, 8.7% per year SPX. 30 years back, 10.3% per year. The great wrong call has been as an actuarial single-digit equity world. Forward, can you be double-digit? In the U.S., I don't think so uh, over long periods, if if you buy into our view that rates are bottoming. I mean, the reason those returns have been above trend, Tom, is directly proportional to the fall in long-term interest rates. Stocks are long-duration assets, okay, and they do, they do better when, obviously, rates are falling. So if you buy into the idea that rates have bottomed for the long cycle, that's a headwind. And that's not, once again, it's not the end of the world, but it's, it's, it's harder. You know, it's running into the wind. Mike, tremendous. Always getting us there to think more. Mike Wilson there, Morgan Stanley, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist on this market as we reopen and the data starts to come through. D'Souza is expert on what we call risk behavior out of Swarthmore and, of course, the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. D'Souza is knee-deep in what we do with our behavior given medical crisis. Dr. D'Souza, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. We are changing our behavior now, and pros like you are worried about rising cases, rising hospitalizations, indeed a fourth wave. Do we risk a fourth wave with our behavior based on pandemic optimism. Yes, good morning. Um, absolutely. We have seen rates increase for the past week or two um, across all states. Um, and we are in a moment where there's a lot of reason for optimism. We have more than a quarter of all Americans have their first dose of the vaccine. The end is in sight. Things will be getting better, but we are not there right now. And we see rates rising because right. people are being less cautious. And this is normal behavior. I mean, I know at Swarthmore, Amber, you had to read uh, Camus' The Plague at gunpoint. I mean, that's what you do at Swarthmore. And there's that optimism at the end of the book, but the pandemic keeps going. For our, our listeners and viewers across this nation and worldwide, what is the best practice right now to manage our optimism? Well, we 
a year into this pandemic, we do know what behaviors transmit the infection, and we do know how to be safe. So people want to see their friends and loved ones. We understand that we can be social while still physically distancing. So we need to maintain mask wearing when you're getting together with unvaccinated people, not get together in large groups. Um, and, and we're seeing people not make those choices. There's a question of what happens when we are perhaps six months post-pandemic, how often we have to get booster shots, how often we have to revisit COVID, whether COVID will become a sort of omnipresent virus that we have to grapple with and that continues to mutate. This Pfizer study that John was talking about, crucial in indicating that perhaps the vaccination has a longer lasting shelf life. What's your sense, based on the budding research, of how present coronavirus will be and also with respect to the vaccines, how long lasting? their effects will be. Yeah, this is a race right now of the virus versus the vaccine, and it depends on several factors. We do have really good news. We have high efficacy of the virus, of the vaccine. It looks like the vaccine is also going to be effective in younger individuals from initial studies, as was mentioned. Um, but we do have viruses mutate. And so with the initial information that we have on immunogenicity suggests that um, people, the, the, that it will last for months and probably years, um, the, the vaccine efficacy or natural immunity from infection. But as the virus mutates, it's very likely we will need some kind of booster shot at some future point. It won't be lifelong protection. When it comes to herd immunity, do you have a sense of what that means now that we're getting an acceleration of vaccinations? Yeah, so herd immunity is not an exact point, but we do need to have a critical mass of people vaccinated before we get that, that benefit of reduced transmission. And so we're going to need to see the majority of infections, uh, majority of Americans vaccinated. So more than 50%, likely 60 or 70% before we really begin to see that benefit. But it is a matter where the more individuals mm -hmm. that are vaccinated, the higher the benefit is. So we'll want to keep going and get those rates as high as we can. Dr. D'Souza, when you see Delta Airlines say things are better and we're going to fill the middle seat in economy on an airplane, how does a pro like you respond? I mean, these are really difficult choices. And so if there's vaccinated individuals who are wearing masks um, and, you know, getting together in a middle seat, the risk is going to be lower. But if it's, if it's unvaccinated individuals, if people are making choices before they get on those planes that have put them at increased risk, it really is a concern. And so I see us opening up at the same time. We need to be driven by the data. And we were bringing rates down. Things were looking good a few weeks ago, but they have taken a real turn for the worse. And I think that's why the alarm is being raised. We need to follow the data. And it suggests the, the increases that we see portend really badly for the next few weeks. And we need to turn this around if we don't want to see a huge fourth wave. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Come back soon, won't you? Dr. Amber DeSosa there of Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.